Welcome to Forging Plowshares. We hope you enjoy this conversation and are challenged by it. Please stay tuned at the end of the podcast for a short message about our ministry. As a teenager, when I became a Christian, a biblical concept that graded on me was that we're called to be slaves of Christ. And I thought, well, I'm an American. I'm in Texas, in the land of the free, the home of the brave. I have my inalienable rights. Total freedom. Is it freedom from any constraint, any authority, any tradition? I think often we have this picture that freedom means nothing constrains, that we have infinite choice and possibility. You know, I'm the master of my ship, the keeper of my soul. I do it my way. And even our picture of hell is that, well, God allows people to be in eternal rebellion. And isn't this notion built on the belief that I think it ensures the notion erroneously that in some way human will and human freedom are at the center as if we could choose rebellion forever and we can choose God but in either case the main thing is we're keeping the integrity of the human will unblighted by coercion by circumstance I think there's a series of contradictions and failures of thought in this notion of freedom and of course that's what Paul is going to describe he's going to really say we have two choices We can be slaves of of sin or we can be slaves of righteousness. And far from any idea of individualism at the center of salvation is this idea not of an individualistic belief but of a deliverance from slavery to an understanding that was not otherwise available to us. Damnation and salvation I'm afraid are often made to revolve around the isolated integrity of a kind of individual will. God, salvation, damnation, the human predicament. I'm afraid in much of American evangelicalism is at the core of our understanding of what Christianity is. And the entire contractual understanding. By that I mean, well, you do this, and God will do that. The idea is that, well, you keep your end of the bargain, God will keep his, as if it's an arrangement between some sort of equal parties. But what the Bible portrays, and what the passage we're about to read, is that God breaks into the human situation. The passage we read this morning of the Exodus from slavery, that is the prime metaphor used in the Bible for salvation. That is redemption. We've been redeemed from out of slavery. John portrays God breaking in into a a kind of apocalyptic fashion. Drawing even, you know, that when I'm lifted up, the word there is I will draw, but actually it may be I will drag all people. And so the most prominent New Testament metaphor for both our sinfulness and our salvation is slavery. We're freed from slavery. But this then makes us slaves of God, slaves of righteousness. And certainly included in that is the idea, well, we're children of the Father, we're brothers of Jesus. But Paul will again and again identify himself as a slave of Christ. I think this belies the notion that we are born as free agents in the world. 
that circumstance and understanding are equally given to all. What's not taken into account is the limitation of our understanding of our circumstance. Our modern understanding, I think, misses what it means to be human and as a result misses what salvation is. And so the notion that we have free will to choose or reject God may in fact miss the manner in which we are enslaved to sin. So let's look at Romans 6, 20 to 22. For when you were slaves of sin, you were free in regard to righteousness. Therefore, what benefit were you then deriving from the things of which you are now ashamed? For the outcome of those things is death. But now having been freed from sin and enslaved to God, you derive your benefit resulting in sanctification and the outcome eternal life. Freedom is relative in Paul's description one might describe, and this is the way that Paul describes it, as unrighteousness. Well, you're free from the constraints of righteousness. I guess that's a kind of freedom. I think Paul is being sarcastic here. He says, well, you're free. You were free. But what were you free to do? Well, to kill yourself. What benefit were you deriving, he asks, other than the benefit of death? But in Christ, you are freed from that sort of freedom. I guess death, that would be a kind of freedom from everything that constrains. That nothing constrains you only when you're dead. So throw off every constraint and be free. That's the, the lure of this kind of false freedom, free from our creatureliness, free from our humanity. But of course that's a, a lie. Not even God is free in this sense. God is constrained by who he is. We might describe someone who jumps off of a bridge or who runs into a burning building. Maybe they just do it for the sheer fun of seeing if they can fly or exercising their freedom. Maybe they just want to experience the exhilaration of being burnt alive. This person may be exercising a kind of liberty, but it seems they are slaves to a delusion that they are experiencing poverty of rational freedom. A parent, you know, who let his child exercise the freedom of running into traffic or the freedom to thrust her face, her child's face, into a fire. That's not a lenient parent. That's a criminally negligent parent. Only when a child is constrained, they understand the laws of gravity. A speeding vehicle will crush you. Only when they understand the basic laws of thermodynamics fire burns. Can the child be free? The law, the perfect law, the law given to us in Christ is the law that frees. And to be the slave of Christ then is the greatest freedom possible because we are freed from delusion, a lie, ignorance, death. I think this is what Paul means that you become slaves of righteousness but this slavery is a total freedom. Freedom does not mean that we're constrained by nothing so that freedom arises only in a vacuum. There's no such thing. It's an impossibility. You know, acting on impulse is not freedom. I think even impulse is constrained, is informed by things. 
So every finite person is limited by definition, and the notion that our liberty is not dependent on our circumstance, the circumstance of being in our right mind, the circumstance of understanding, of having access to the truth. To imagine that there is freedom apart from that access, that truth, I think is a contradiction. Jesus tells us the truth will set you free. That means that a lie must enslave. Freedom presumes access to the truth. It is not simply a spontaneous acts of the will. Paul says you were formerly free of righteousness. I guess that's a kind of freedom, but it means that you were enslaved to sin. An act of pure spontaneity, pure impulse, running into a fire, is not freedom. Pure choice, free of purpose, free of a goal, is brute fact. It's like an accident. Our choices, though, are always exercised on the basis of some rationale. The question is, do we have access to the truth in which our reason, our rationale, is not marred? The marring of reason, an obscuring of the truth, a perversion of the goal, that is the problem of sin. And so we're constrained and directed by the fact that we are human, we're fallen. Our mental capacity, the circumstance of our birth, our family circumstance, well, maybe it allows us a degree of latitude, but absolute freedom from the contingency of circumstance is simply not a possibility. I'm, you know, I mentioned today, I, I'm not free to become a famous concert violinist. I do not have the basic talent for it. It's really not true. You know, we tell children this, but it's not really true that a child can become whatever they want to be. If you're a midget, it's unlikely that you will play professional basketball. So when we say freedom, this is not freedom in an absolute sense. I guess the squirrels in my yard are free. They are not caged in, but they're not free to be birds. They can't fly, although they keep getting up in the bird food. They can't be dogs. They're not free to enjoy good literature, though they do eat my books occasionally. Uh, they're not free to take a ski trip to Vail. In their squirreliness, though, they're completely free. They're free to be what they were created to be. And we are most free when we are what we were created to be, when we have access to the truth of what we were created to be. Sin is a loss of that truth, a derangement of our understanding, a derangement of our passions. And so the more one is in one's right mind, the more that is that one is conscious of God as goodness that fulfills all beings, and the more we recognize that our nature can have its true completion and joy only in Him, to that degree we throw off the fetters of a distorted perception, we free ourselves from deranged passions, and this means that as we rid ourselves of our blindness, I think we are, and I'm going to use a word here, inevitably drawn to the light. Liberated from crippling ignorance, emancipated from the impoverished condition of sin, we freely will one thing, right? And I think this is what it means to be slaves of righteousness. That this too constrains but it constrains in alignment with our understanding, with our will. A rational nature seeks 
or someone in their right mind seeks a rational end. Truth, which is God himself. Think of Jesus casting out the demons of the Gerasene demoniac. It results in the man being clothed and in his right mind. But isn't this rescue that he's carrying out really the rescue? It's a kind of depiction of his rescue of the whole human race. We have been possessed by a lie. We have fallen short of the truth. We have acted in ignorance. And God speaks in Christ and the demons flee. You know, this is the picture in the Johannine depiction. There are no demon exorcisms in John, but one could say, yes, but there's one huge exorcism. The prince of this world is being cast out. The demoniac, you know, he, I guess he could continue. He maybe he loves running around naked, hurting himself and others. But if that happened, we'd say, well, the exorcism didn't really work, did it? In John's depiction, Jesus has exorcised the prince of this world. He's cast out this cosmic delusion. This is, of course, sin as depicted in Genesis. It's a grab for freedom that, in fact, is no freedom at all. Can't we throw off the constraint of God's heavy prohibition? The serpent says, you have life in yourself. Maybe I do, was the question. You imagine that you shall be the arbiter of your own ethical understanding, choosing good and evil without reference to God. Romans 1, 21 to 23, I think, is re-describing this. For even though they knew God, they knew him. He walked in the garden in the cool of the day. They did not honor him as God or give thanks, but they became futile in their speculations and their foolish heart was darkened. Professing to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the incorruptible God. Very soon they exchange it for an image. Idolatry becomes rampant an image in the form of corruptible man. And so in a sense, yeah, they were given two possibilities, two choices. Maybe we could call it two alternative ways of being human, but it really was a choice to be what God intended or to be deluded, ignorant, deceived, subject to death. I guess one might choose a lie over truth, one might choose ignorance, one might choose some sort of perverse reason and let his will act accordingly. And one might consider that a kind of total freedom, a freedom to jump off a bridge. But we immediately recognize that one who does such a thing is prompted by a perverse rationale, right? It's wholly irrational, it's insane, and therefore no more truly free than someone having a psychotic episode. You're out of your minds. That's the picture of Jesus' healing ministry, and he gives us the mind of Christ. The irresistibility of God for any soul, I think, that has been truly set free, it's not a constraint upon his liberty. Our problem there is our misunderstanding of what liberty is. Someone starving might freely choose, if they're given a meal, they say, well, no, thank you. Or someone dying of thirst and they see a spring in the desert, they might choose not to drink. But someone who chooses not to eat or drink 
That would be no act of freedom. It would be a manifestation of the delusion that enslaves and forces them to inflict violence, to practice deeds of death as Paul is describing it. The mind set on the flesh is deluded in Paul's picture, as if they can free themselves, be their own power. You know, I can drink from the well of myself. I will feed on my own powers, my own flesh. I'll be my own truth. For those who are according to the flesh, Paul says, set their minds on the things of the flesh. But those who are according to the Spirit, the things of the Spirit. For the mind set on the flesh is death. But the mind set on the Spirit is life and peace. Those are the only two choices. Because the mind set on the flesh is hostile to God. It's already rejected God. It does not subject itself to the law of God. It would be its own arbiter of truth, create its own laws. It is not even able to do so, Paul says, and those who are in the flesh cannot please God. My point here, to be a slave of Christ is no constraint upon the freedom of the will. It is simply the consequence of possessing a nature produced by and for God, for the transcendent good. A nature whose proper end is fashioned in harmony with this supernatural purpose. As Augustine says, God has made us for himself, and our hearts are restless till they rest in him. Romans 8, 14 to 17, For all who are being led by the Spirit of God, these are the sons of God, you have not received a spirit of slavery to fear again, but you've received a spirit of adoption as sons by which we cry out, Abba, Father. Paul's resolution to the alienation of the subject, you know, to, of the law, you become a slave of God, you become a slave of Christ, or you become a child of God. Where the sinful mind, he says, is by definition hostile to God, the one adopted as a child by the Spirit has overcome this hostility. As in Ezekiel's prophecy, you know, the heart of stone is replaced with a heart of flesh. We can't do that operation on our own. We can't perform our own surgery, right? We are not capable of accomplishing this transformation of the heart, but only God can remove the heart of stone. And that's what we think he does in Christ. We would make ourselves, I suppose, in our freedom, our false freedom, a rock. We would make ourselves unbreakable. And the imprint of God upon us is that we are made into not a stone, but a heart of flesh. Romans 8.29, for whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed. This conformity is to the image of his son. That is, he draws us, he conforms us. It's through his power that he might be the firstborn among many brethren. And so Christ, this is, the, we have two choices, you know, two pictures. We can follow the first Adam as model, or we can follow the second Adam as model. But really those are the only two choices given to us. The corporate or familial nature of righteousness. It's always corporate. We're fallen corporately and we're saved corporately. Righteousness is not something which we do individually. We don't do it on our own. It's not a, a willful decision that I make in the private depths of my mind or heart. It's something that we do in relationship 
as a social being. We are saved corporately. Certainly that impacts us individually. We're saved by being incorporated into a new family, into a new kingdom, emancipated from slavery in one kingdom and delivered to another, set free from the lie of sin. And so there is a certainty in being a child of God, we can depend upon the love of God. And this stands in contrast to what oppresses us, the demands that we would exercise on ourselves. But being set free from the law of sin and death, that frees us then. It frees us up, not for more sin, Paul says. Don't use your freedom for sin, but use your freedom to become a slave of Christ. My conclusion here. We are, as it were, doomed to be slaves of truth, slaves of righteousness, slaves of happiness. So long as our natures follow their healthiest impulses unhindered. And Christ frees us to do that. We're saved not because we loved him first, John says, but because he loved us. He has broken into history. He is breaking into societies. He's breaking into cultures. He breaks into our lives and forms a new people. This is apocalyptic. It's not contractual. It's overwhelming. It's inevitable. It is not human will then that stands at the center of this movement. It is God's will. And he draws all men then to the cross. Forging Plowshares is a community dedicated to cultivating the peaceful kingdom by providing in-depth, transformative biblical and theological education and discipleship. If you have been moved by this podcast, please remember to share on social media. If you would like to know more about Forging Plowshares, would like to contact us with questions, want to ask about how you can get involved, or for more information about how you can support this ministry, please go to our website at forgingplowshares.org.